This is Millennially Speaking, my personal soapbox about politics, pop culture, and everything in between. I'm David Latimer. This week, we're talking about the fourth Democratic presidential debate. What are the highlights? Who are the winners and losers? And what do the debate questions say about where this race is heading? But first, I want to talk about the highlights of how this debate sort of came about. So with the fourth debate, they were using the same criteria for eligibility as the third debate, including the same deadlines to meet that criteria. So pretty much everybody that was eligible for the third debate could now enter into the fourth debate. So even if your fundraising or your polling didn't really change significantly, you were still eligible and you were still on that stage. So the 10 candidates from September were there for October. Uh, In addition to two more candidates, so this actually was the most crowded stage so far for a debate. This was 12 candidates. Uh, In addition to the original 10 from September, we added Tulsi Gabbard and, for the first time, Tom Steyer. So... I'm not going to say it was interesting to hear his voice, but it was interesting to have a different voice on stage. And I'll get into that uh, in a little bit as to why I don't find him very interesting. But that was the the rules for this debate. Now, the rules for the next debate are definitely different. And there's an even higher bar for that one. And as of right now, there's actually, I believe, four, four or five of the candidates who were eligible for this debate won't be for the next one. And one of them that actually is eligible is Tom Steyer. So... That new voice will be continuing on to the next one, and we'll see how long that lasts. But as of now, he is eligible. But anyway, I want to get into some of the highlights from the debate. Uh, The first thing that I thought was interesting and something that I really hope that they continue with is that there were no opening statements. Uh, I feel that opening statements, to me, don't really say anything new about candidates. They don't really provide any insight. They don't provide any kind of real answers to who this candidate is and what their policy standpoints are, to me, they end up just being bloviating and trying to be relatable and it comes across as phony. So a lot of times they'll tell stories or things like that, or they will, whatever they do, it just to me does not come across as genuine. So I'm glad that to help fit in the 12 candidates that were going to be on stage, they decided against the opening statement. So I have no problem with that. And I think they should keep doing that. Um, The first question that they talked about was impeachment. And that was kind of an obvious, if you had to just guess from what, you know, past practice was, you would probably say healthcare would be the first question. However, this debate is the first one since the impeachment inquiry against Trump was opened. So this was definitely a new topic to discuss. And you could tell across the board, impeachment definitely was something that everyone on stage was at least in favor of. Uh, The most vocal would probably be Tom Steyer because before he was running for president back in 2017, even he was starting a impeach Donald Trump. It was it was an impeach Donald Trump kind of campaign, uh, just not focused on politics. Then he said, oh, I'm not going to run. Just kidding. Yeah, I am going to run for president. So now he's using that as sort of a political thing. But I don't really know why impeachment is necessarily the big focus or why it should be a big focus for anyone on stage because the point is to beat Trump should impeachment not you know should he not be removed from office the point of it is to beat him 
in the political way, in the, you know, winning against him in a race thing, not, you know, you know, it, to me, I think that question, I think it was important maybe to bring it up, but I think they focused a little bit too much on it. Anyway, so another thing that was important to note about this debate is that Warren spoke first. Elizabeth Warren is now, statistically speaking, a co-frontrunner with Joe Biden. For the first time, we can actually statistically and, and through a lot of the polling see that Elizabeth Warren is now a frontrunner, really the frontrunner for this race. And she's had a very steady uh, increase over the last several months after a pretty botched uh, start to her campaign, and that had to do with the whole Pocahontas thing and the Native American claiming that she has Native American heritage and then sort of doubling down and trying to to make that stick. And I don't know why she went through that whole thing. I don't know why she felt that that was important to really bring up, whether it was true or not. I just don't see why that was so, why, why that was a focus for her, again, whether it was true or not. It's It was kind of ridiculous. But yeah, so she is now a front runner. And so I think that sort of changed the dynamic of the debate a lot. So Joe Biden, I think throughout the whole thing, normally he gets most of the uh, attacks and most of the tough questions. But this time, I think Elizabeth Warren got a lot more of those rather than Biden. Cory Booker, one of the things that he said is that impeachment should be more than partisanship. And I get what he's saying, but impeachment by its nature is a political process. And I mean, if there are truly, you know, crimes that the Senate sees and and decides to convict and remove, yeah, it should be besides partisanship. We should, you know, unite under common decency and common law. But it's kind of funny to hear someone say that impeachment shouldn't be about party when it really is about party. To impeach a president is truly a partisan act, not a... Uh, a lawful act. It's a, it's just political. Amy Klobuchar said during the impeachment discussion, she said, we can do two things at once. That was something that a couple people said a couple of times that, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can do a couple things or two things at once, you know, impeach Trump and also focus on policy and things like that. But I've seen no evidence of that so far, to be honest. I mean, you hear that there's these meetings going on with, you know, Democratic leaders and, and maybe with Trump. Today, I heard there was a, a meeting that House leadership and Trump were were discussing things and they ended up the meeting broke down and they got nothing accomplished, which I mean, I'm not surprised because I can't imagine Trump wanting to actually work with any Democratic leadership since they're trying to impeach him, regardless of the, you know, who Trump is as a person. If you're a Republican president and you're being impeached by a Democratic House, I wouldn't really want to work with them either. So I think it's funny to hear someone say we can do two things at once and simultaneously you're not doing two things at once. You're The focus is impeachment, rightly or wrongly. It is solidly that is what the focus is, and I don't see much policy coming from the Democrats. One of the things that Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, said is that the election is about life after Trump, and I, I completely agree. It's I'm kind of sick of... You know, if Democrats want to talk about policy, if Democrats want to talk about their plans and what they want to do, that's fine. That's great. Then do that. And let's not worry so much about what Trump says or does, because when you get caught up in that, that's when you get caught up in this sort of cycle of the the ridiculous news cycle that happens where 
you just get sucked into something that Trump says, and then you then have to put your policies to the side. You know, I'm much more of a pragmatist where instead of worrying about something someone says, I want to be realistic and really focus on the substance here. And I appreciate that that kept coming up several times, that he just wants to focus on the election, which is not about impeachment. It's about focusing on if if a Democrat should win, it is about life after Trump. Tulsi Gabbard said that while she does think that impeachment is going to divide the country, she still does support it, which I I don't know. That, you know, remains to be seen. I think obviously you're going to have your uh, far left and far right are going to stay in their camps and really nothing's going to change their mind. I think this whole attempt to change the real Trump supporters' minds, the the real solid uh, 40, whatever the his approval rating is right now, it's like low 40s is sort of where he's at. Whoever the, the hardcore Trump supporters are, you're never going to change their mind. I don't think any information that comes out, any evidence, anything for the impeachment, because more stuff does keep coming out that could potentially change some minds, but there are certainly people who are in Trump's camp that nothing that is said will change their mind. And that's, I, I don't know how much this is going to divide the country if we're already sort of in those camps, you know. Anyway, Yang says that with impeachment, regarding impeachment, Trump's not going to get removed from office. And I believe that too, even again, even if more evidence does come out that may flip a few Republicans, I don't think you're going to get nearly the amount that is required to remove because you need about 20 to do that, to have that two-thirds majority. And I don't see that happening in any scenario at all. You know, I think there was, there's been talk about the only real possibility that Republicans could flip on Trump is if somehow the story of Ukraine and the story of Syria were to somehow become one because Republicans are a lot more willing to call out Trump when it comes to military policy because that's sort of their wheelhouse. Whereas the Ukraine thing, that's definitely obviously more on the Democrat side in terms of uh, their their focus. So while they both care about Syria, I think Republicans may be more willing to retreat on that and and turn on him but i still don't see that as a likely scenario so another thing that happened the really the second topic that was brought up this was addressed to joe biden and this regards the ukraine scandal so again the we talked first about impeachment then the thing that impeachment is about so he asked the 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 moderator directly asked joe biden about conflicts of interest about his son hunter biden working for that ukrainian business and just asking about, you know, does he think that, or, or if he's president, would he avoid these kinds of conflicts of interest? So, again, I'm not going to, you know, sit here and talk about the, all the different things that have come out about the Ukrainian scandal. All I would say about it as of right now is something that I think everyone can sort of agree on is that it looks fishy. Even if we, you know, there, currently there is no evidence that he committed a crime by doing this. You know, based on the the actual, when you break it out in terms of the timeline, the evidence does not support that Joe Biden did something just to help his son. But it certainly looks fishy that Hunter Biden, who had no real skill or no real reason to be hired by this company, would be hired by that company. And the only reason that we can tell is to curry favor with the government, with the U.S. government, because of the name, because of his name being Biden. So... That certainly looks fishy, and I think that was a good question to ask because I really do think that regardless of the lawfulness of it or not, and, and 
whether it was an illegal thing or not, it's still a really fishy thing. And I am not okay with it uh, of, you know, this kind of foreign lobbying. And it wasn't even lobbying. It's, It's a family member of an important U.S. official getting a job that he doesn't really deserve. And, and the, the attempts by Biden to say that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't know anything about it or he, he and his son never talked about it. The fact that your son is being paid about $50,000 a month by a company in a foreign country and you don't really have any skills for that job, really, that never came up in conversation. You didn't know that was going on in your son's life. I highly doubt that. But. I would just say this total, the whole thing is fishy to me, and I would say he really does need to avoid those conflicts of interest because it just looks bad and it just plays into Republicans' hands for sure. But going along the lines of that questioning, he really deflected. Biden really deflected. I mean, he, he's trying to avoid falling into talking points and he wants to avoid even legitimizing the question. But I think it is a legitimate question to say that, you know, should your son be doing this thing while you also happen to be doing something that could potentially involve benefiting your son? You know, that's, I think, a legitimate thing to ask, regardless of the lawfulness of it or not, like I said. Um, and he still never really answered the question fully. And he kept, you know, deferring to Trump and and sort of deflecting the question at, you know, the real problem is here, what Trump did, which you can debate whether one is more important than the other or whether both are important or not. But it is a debate and you need to answer the question at hand, which he really could have done, but kind of chose not to. And um, Beto, not Beto O'Rourke, I'm sorry, Cory Booker actually pointed out, he's like, you know, we're just playing into Republican talking points and we're, we're playing into their hand by, you know, what was the line? He was talking about, you know, we, we elevated a lie and attacked a statesman by, you know, talking about the Ukraine story and then also by attacking Joe Biden. And Again, it's a debate, and it's something in the news. It's something that's noteworthy regarding one of the people on stage. So I don't think that's necessarily a uh, a point that Cory Booker is allowed to make. But, you know, that's his prerogative. At one point, we finally did get a healthcare question. And once again, the moderators went to Elizabeth Warren to ask, would her plan raise taxes on the middle class? And to be honest, I'm really kind of sick of them asking this question because we all really do know the answer. She's answered it. And I can sort of see from their perspective why, because she hasn't really answered the question outright. And I get why she hasn't, because it's very much a baited question, trying to get her to say, yes, your taxes are going to go up, which never sounds good. And everyone gets scared when they hear taxes are going up. She's trying to talk about how in, in her plan, the idea is that your taxes will go up, but the rest of the costs will go down. So when you go to use your health care, you're not going to be hit with some ridiculous bill. And they keep baiting her with that question every time, trying to get her to say, yeah, your taxes are going to go up, which always is a bad thing for anybody to hear. So asked and answered, stop asking it at every single debate. It's getting old. It it really does feel like I'm stuck in this twilight zone of repeating the exact same questions every time. Uh, Mayor Pete has become sort of the Medicare for all who want it candidate or the, the main Medicare for all who want it candidate. And, his plan, he says he wants people to have choice, and that's why he wants there to be a public option, and that's what he says. He says Americans want choice, and he got into a little bit of an argument uh, regarding Elizabeth Warren's plan. Klobuchar, as well, is one that is is on that side of Medicare for all who want it, basically just to say that, 
you know, we don't have to upend the system because some people really do like their health care, but others want that choice of a different program that's not run by a company or a corporation. Another interesting thing that happened is that we all know that Andrew Yang has this universal basic income or his freedom dividend plan of $1,000 a month for every American adult. Well, his policy is actually getting some attention from some other candidates. And for the first time, some other candidates have actually mentioned it and said that, hey, maybe it's not a bad idea. Uh, Castro being one of them, Warren potentially one of them. She talked about giving people money for uh, to be able to afford certain, just certain things. And and that's one of the benefits of having extra candidates on stage. You know, whether it benefits the debates or not, which I don't think it does, it can help debate because you have more voices with more opinions and different backgrounds. And you can, you see there's all kinds of races and genders and, and ethnicities on stage at the same time or running for president at the same time, getting these different ideas out coming from different perspectives. And that's actually a good thing. It benefits all of us. At one point, the candidates talked about the recent decision by Trump regarding Syria or, or to pull out of Syria. And there was an interesting exchange between Tulsi Gabbard and Pete Buttigieg, the only two veterans on stage. And they were very much against each other's policies. So for Mayor Pete, he... He takes the more liberal stance of we should end endless wars, but we need a a plan for removal rather than just pulling everyone out all at once. So we need this sort of exit plan and an exit strategy, things like that. Whereas Tulsi Gabbard was sort of more on, I guess, more towards Trump's side of the, you know, we want to end endless wars kind of a thing. But con- continuing a regime change war is what she called it. You know, she she doesn't want to do that because she very much sees this as a Iraq 2003 kind of a thing where we went in there with false pretenses and ended up staying too long and being there for a reason that was to change the regime. And I just feel like that dynamic between the two was very interesting to watch, and I think it elevated their uh, their position just of who they are, because they're both veterans. So to hear the sort of differing ideas and the differing uh, opinions about that from very similar backgrounds in that way was very interesting, I think. When we got to a question about weapons, and specifically the last debate, Beto was asked about would he ban and confiscate AR-15s, AK-47s, things like that. And he said, hell yes, we're going to take away your your AR-15s, your AK-47s. When asked about that this time, he did double down. He said he is going to ban those kinds of weapons. But when moderators sort of asked about it when they were trying to dig, well, how are you going to do it? Because he said he's not going to go door to door. He's not going to go door to door and ask for the retrieval of guns. So he said, well, if it's not that, well, then what are you going to do? And his response was, I think, very weak. He says he wants a a licensing program, which that's fine. That's something that a lot of people have been in favor of for years. But he was asked, like, well, what if people don't register the the weapons? Well, what about the ones on the streets? Or how are you going to enforce this? And he says, 
essentially he doesn't really have a plan. Um, he he says that because it's the law, people are just going to follow the law, and he sort of just trusts people are going to follow the law, which I found kind of laughable. That is a a thing that Republicans are going to latch onto, kind of like the last debate, and just sort of run with it. That oh, criminals are going to follow the law. That's funny, haha. Which yeah, I mean that's true. You know, if there's illegal AR-15s or AK-47s on the street, people aren't just going to go register them and turn them in. It's just not going to happen. So he needs a better plan. If that's going to be one of your policy plans is to take those guns, you know, away, what is the strategy there? What's And if it's not to take them away, then how do you make the licensing plan work? You know, you have to have some substance to these kinds of big statements that you make on stage at debates. When discussing the opioid crisis... Andrew Yang actually says he wants to decriminalize the use of these opioids. And I thought that was an interesting stance because I don't think I've heard that yet. At least definitely not on a debate stage. And Beto actually agrees with it. And this is sort of in the same vein of starting a needle exchange program of if you're going to be shooting up heroin, we want to avoid you getting HIV and AIDS. So here's this needle exchange program, you're going to get clean needles, you're not going to be sharing needles anymore, we're preventing one public health crisis while there's another one sort of going on at the same time. I don't know how I feel about this. It's sort of the same thing with decriminalizing marijuana without just, you know, legalizing it outright. It kind of is just a a skirt around the issue. I mean, there's definitely more that needs to be done regarding opioids, but I'm not sure if decriminalization is the right answer. Because um, there definitely are people that need opioids for actual medical reasons. And then the idea of use recreationally and just sort of embracing that seems really out there. And, and I'm not, at least I'm not for that. For the first time, I am so glad the elephant in the room has been addressed. The age of candidates. So the fact that the, the three top candidates, top polling candidates, are in their 70s, and there's also two people in their 30s that are running, Tulsi Gabbard and Pete Buttigieg. So we have some of the oldest and some of the youngest running, and that was finally addressed on a debate stage. Not only that, but this comes about a week and a half or so after Bernie Sanders had a heart attack. So this was even more so an elephant in the room, an even bigger elephant in the room, and I'm so glad this was finally addressed. They all think that they are still able to run, and they have no problems with their vitality and their ability to be president, which, that's uh, up for debate, I guess, but Bernie Sanders wants to prove that he is vital and not going to have any issues. And he said, you know, he's promoting a rally that he's going to have this weekend, which supposedly is going to have some major endorsements. But I mean, at the debate, he seemed fine. He seemed pretty lively, about the same as he usually is. Um, Joe Biden is known for sounding old and and being sort of, you know, stumbling on his words and, and misspeaking a lot. But that's, you know, everyone says that's just Joe and it is, that's, that's who Joe Biden is. I don't know if that's age or if that's just who he is, but that's kind of what he is known for. Uh, and then as for the young candidates, are they experienced enough or, or is their age going to be a problem? And they don't think so. I personally tend to agree with that. I think the age thing, you know, 
the idea that you have to be a certain age to know enough to run for president. I don't think that's right. I think that's an ageist thing. And we should focus on qualifications and their ability to lead rather than just age. Um, unless it comes to health. If you're if you're someone in your 60s or 70s and you're really healthy, go for it and that's fine. But you got to prove it. And that's that's one of the things that I think these candidates are are trying to do. They also addressed the idea of breaking up big tech. That's one of Elizabeth Warren's big plans, uh, which is interesting because she says that she is and and this differs from Bernie Sanders. She says that she is a capitalist, but that the capitalism has been overtaken by big corporations and the the corruption of big corporations. So that, that's really her main thing or her main focus for her candidacy is corruption. And the idea of breaking up the big tech companies, some people were in favor of it. I know Andrew Yang talked about it, but he said that that's not the only thing. Competition isn't the only thing that's going to improve companies. And I think that's true. I know uh, just recently, just this week, the T-Mobile and Sprint merger was approved by the FCC. There's still some more hoops to jump through, but the idea that shrinking competition, that's going to hurt, but expanding competition, should should that have not been approved, that's not going to make things just better automatically. Um, so by breaking up these big companies, it's it's not just that. It's about privacy. It's about um, the the control that we don't even realize regarding surveillance and things like that location tracking but you know the the at least the topic was brought up and it it's elevating another one of Elizabeth Warren's policies and that again that really shines through that she is a front runner now because we're really starting to address some of her main policy points uh, Biden also says that uh, regarding abortion and and Roe v Wade trying to solidify the the Roe v Wade decision he says that Packing the court is not the way to do it because he thinks that will delegitimize the court as if that hasn't already started happening. I think a lot of people are kind of feeling like just the way that we talk about the Supreme Court and saying that they are liberal justices and conservative justices, code for Republican and Democrat, we've already delegitimized it by basically making it about party. So I think we're already there, Biden. I really don't think that you know, unless we start actually calling them Republicans and Democrats, I don't think we can delegitimize the who these people are any more than we already have. That when someone who was appointed by a Republican goes and, and dissents from the other Republicans, that shouldn't be a surprise. That should just be this was their decision based on their interpretation of the Constitution and the law. So, you know, that, that shouldn't come as a surprise and we shouldn't be talking about it in the same way that we talk about regular politics. And then in closing, the closing question was super weird. It brought up the controversy of Ellen and George W. Bush that we talked about last week. And basically they related back to that and saying like, you know, describe a friendship that you have or or basically a uncommon or kind of someone we'd be surprised to know that you're friends with. And all of the responses were really bizarre. And they, because this was the last question, this was interpreted as the closing statements. So they kind of got halfway through telling some stories and then they were like, yeah, and also go to my website, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I think that closing question was such a waste. That was dumb. And 
I really wish they had done better for that. And I, I really think it's dumb that we keep bringing up the Ellen thing because in the grand scheme of things, it is so unimportant to the rest of the issues going on. We'll be right back. Did you know that Millennially Speaking is now on Twitter? Check us out at underscore MS podcast. That's at underscore MS podcast. We're back, and I just wanted to talk very briefly about who I think the winners and losers are for this debate. So as for winners, it's sort of hard to say. I think some people had good nights and some had better nights than others. I think finally Joe Biden had a little bit of a break in this one because now that sort of the pressure of him being the sole front runner has been taken off by now Elizabeth Warren having more of that uh, pull and some of that polling data. I think her getting some of those attacks benefited him for sure. Not that his responses were that great. He definitely tried to be a little bit more forceful in his responses, whether that worked or didn't. I, I don't know. But I, I think he felt a little bit more enabled to do that kind of uh, aggressive uh, hit backs at some of the, the things that were said at him and, and just the questions that were made. I think Amy Klobuchar had a pretty decent night because she was able to use that the ability that that Joe Biden was no longer the sole, you know, moderate kind of person that she's able to sort of swoop in and be that, you know, extra moderate voice doesn't mean I think she's going to get any kind of poll bump from this. But I think she she went through this pretty unscathed and, and really having no issues. I think for this being Elizabeth Warren's first debate as a front runner, I think she did pretty well for herself. I think she was able to hit back and and make some good points and also have I think you're you're going to start catching glimmers of being able to take on Trump and and that's sort of one of the the big things and the big questions that Democrats are going to have right now or they do have which is who can take on Trump and I think her responses to things definitely are sort of in the same vein or in a similar vein to Trump in her ability to be quick with her responses and sort of pithy and I think that definitely was shining through also, I think Bernie Sanders did pretty well. So so all three frontrunners, I think, did well. But Bernie Sanders, post-heart attack, that's the most important thing, that he just came over this heart attack, and he didn't come in looking weak. And I think that was important. As for losers, definitely Tom Steyer. I mean, after the impeachment question was over, he really should have just gone home. I mean, really nothing important from him. I don't know what his policy standpoints are other than impeach Donald Trump. That's fine, but you don't run for president on impeach Donald Trump. You run on policy or just beat the guy. So I don't really understand why he's there. Um, Beto O'Rourke continues to have crappy, crappy debates. He, I don't know what happened to him. He was like the golden boy of Texas first running for Senate. And now the running for president thing, he just has completely just flopped. Um, the, the question about guns, he did terribly on. I don't really understand what his direction is or where he's going. but uh, And probably the other loser, I'd say, is uh, Kamala Harris. I don't really know. She didn't really have that great of a night. There wasn't really anything really noteworthy about her from, from the debate. I just don't know. Again, she had a little bit of a boost uh, after the first debate when she was attacking Joe Biden on his uh, busing policy standpoint from from decades ago but now I think that is sort of worn off and I don't really know if there's anything else that's going to get her to catch fire we'll be right back did you know that millennially speaking is also on instagram check us out at 
millennially underscore speaking. You can catch highlights from our shows. You can catch upcoming previews and what's going to be happening on the show. It's a lot of fun. So check us out on Instagram at millennially underscore speaking. We're back. And lastly, I just wanted to real quick talk about what the questioning from this debate means about where the race is heading. And you can tell that the questioning has been really similar in each debate. This one had a little bit of a different questioning. So so we talked about impeachment and they talked about Ukraine. So important things that are happening within the news. Um, but most of the questioning remains the same. You know, things that Americans really care about. You know, they talk about health care and they talk about the, a lot of times they talk about women's access to abortion and and guns and they talk about the opioid crisis and, and, and all these sort of similar topics. But the one thing that they don't talk about is climate change. So for the party that has sort of been working against climate change from the beginning, you know, Al Gore being sort of the 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 main proponent of or the initial proponent of climate change help, it's kind of weird that they really haven't talked about it a lot. I mean, they had a climate forum or a climate town hall a couple of weeks ago on CNN, but other than that, there really hasn't been a lot of discussion about it, and I think that's kind of odd. So you can tell that that's really not going to be an important deciding factor in this race, that the the Jay Inslee candidacy of running for climate change just voters don't really care about it. And, and that's what's hard is because it's not something that you can, when you see it, you can't point to it. Like you can hear people say like, you know, oh, well, we have these, you know, chaotic weather events and they're much closer together and it's things like that. And that points to climate change, but voters don't really, it's not important to them. It's much lower on the list than anything else. And rightly or wrongly, that's just what it is. And a lot of people point that out at the end of every or at the end of every debate, people say, you know, here are the things that we talked about. And it's hard for these moderators and for these networks that are making up these questions for them to even, you know, defend that when their last question was so dumb, in my opinion. So, I mean, even if they don't give as much time to it as they normally do to healthcare or the impeachment one from this last debate, even if they only gave it like a quick 10 minute segment, I think that would satisfy some people, especially a lot of real liberal voters who are really trying to decide between some of these more liberal candidates at the top. But, you know, I really don't think we're going to see much change there. You know, that that climate town hall was really designed to sort of satisfy that cry for oh, we need to talk about climate change. But I don't think they're going to talk about it much anymore. And that's all for this special edition of Millennially Speaking. I'm David Latimer. Be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you like this podcast, share us with your friends. Thanks for listening.